testing you, okay? You know, it's, it is morning in Uganda, I think. So, yeah, that's right. It's morning somewhere. I think there's a song, but I think it says 5 o'clock. Anyway, our first song is 138, Nothing But the Blood. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before your throne of grace. Lord, you are almighty, all-powerful, and all-loving. Lord, we just uh, thank you for your grace, Lord. And thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for who's the reason we gather here this morning. We ask you to be with us, and as the word's brought to us, Lord, that a little lets it fill our heart, Lord. And we take this word out to a lost and dying world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We have any... Birthdays this month? How about anniversaries? Bar mitzvahs? I don't want to skip anybody. That's all. I was just trying to make sure. All right. If not, then uh, let's uh, have our evening offering. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for all the provisions that you provide us. Lord, you give us the very air that we breathe. Lord, now we just bring a small part back to you, Lord. We ask you to use these offerings, these tithes, things that uh, this 
money that we have, Lord, to the furtherment of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Linda, thank you for that offertory very much. I haven't, I haven't, it's another song I just haven't heard in so long. Such a well-written song. Thank you. We're in Hosea chapter 10 tonight. Hosea chapter 10. We started a little bit late, so if, if, if we go over tonight, it's, it's 100% Jim Hartle's fault. Just so we're clear on that. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> My son makes me feel so good about my comedy. It's fantastic. <laughs> there was uh, an article. There's a, a periodical I like to read very much most of the time uh, called The Mockingbird. And a, a few months ago there was a, an article in there about how human beings are not meant to be famous. Um, we weren't engineered to deal with fame with all that fame brings, the pressure, the expectations, the applause, we just aren't built for it. It was not something that, that we were intended to be really in creation. It's an extremely insightful thesis. It's very well written. It was very good. It, it makes me think, though, that the Bible either implicitly or explicitly reveals that there are actually many things that human beings just can't handle. It's not just that they weren't meant to handle it, but when they come or when we experience them, we can't handle them. Tonight, Hosea 10 reveals that one of those things, one of the most, maybe the most biblical um, topic that's addressed most as it pertains to that is prosperity and the sense of self-sufficiency that results from it the delusion it gives us that we not only must give to God that which He requires, but again, that we can give to God what God requires. That's a delusion. And when we are so crooked, to think that is so dangerous because we are so crooked that we can't even process God's blessings correctly. We're unable to do that. Once again, in chapter 10 tonight, Hosea strips us bare, points us to our only hope, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for um, this church. God, I thank you for every single person that is a part of it. I thank you for your provision here, God, this building, this place to gather where everything, we have everything that we need here. And Father, I thank you so much. I, I thank you for those uh, willing to be here tonight, those that couldn't be with us tonight. And Father, I pray that you would help us listen. Lord, please help me speak. Please cover me. Shelter me. Let me hide myself in you, Father, that your word might be clear, uh, that we might understand the implications of this great text. And this I ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read the first two verses of Hosea 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So Israel is gone, if you remember, from how she was found as a just a, a little bunch of grapes in the wilderness, so to speak, in chapter 9 to a luxuriant vine spreading through the promised land here in chapter 10. She had grown up. Hosea's ministry, or he here, has, has, has grown up. Hosea's ministry began during a period of expansion and prosperity in Israel. That's easy to forget because, again, that would that's all the more likely to make Hosea's word feel out of place to the Israelites, right? Because things are going very well. The nation is prospering. The gross domestic product is increasing. And so they're going to say, Prophet, look look around you. What what do you mean God is going to judge us? We're we're extremely blessed right now. But instead of thanking God for what they had, instead of recognizing that none of it was actually the product of their abilities, but of God's faithfulness, 
the more she prospered materially, the further from God Israel went. The more fruit she saw, the more improvement she saw, the more she longed for other gods. In other words, this is foundational tonight, there is direct, there was a direct correlation between her growing prosperity and her growing apostasy. They were happening together, they were the result of one another, like a wife who becomes opportunistic with other men through or because of the material prosperity through which she can improve herself that's actually been granted to her, in that case, by her husband. Right? Again, the, the marriage metaphor, we, we just have to keep pushing it. Israel has used God's faithfulness to make herself appealing to other nations, to other gods, other saviors. And God has had, again, God has had enough. These are, these are not, when, when you see here that they're, they're building more and more altars, these are not godly altars. As the fact that they're also building pillars along with their altars makes clear. These are, these pillars are like totem poles. They're shrines to other gods. They're mixing their religions. And again, worship in Israel is supposed to have been centralized in Jerusalem. The more local centers of worship that were created to accommodate the division in the nation, and the different preferences and needs of the people, the further Israel went into false worship. We're not meant to create our own ways to worship God. We're not meant to do that. So you see in the text, in in light of all this, their heart is false, and they'll give an account for it. God is going to tear it all down. We will never invest enough in the world to get a return that outruns the judgment or the demand of God. Ever. We will never have enough, produce enough as a people, as a planet, to stand on our own before God. Fruit is good. Harvest is good in its own right, but it doesn't matter. The harvest that actually matters is love for God and the produce of righteousness from His people. That's what God required from Israel. That's precisely what Israel is not producing. We don't determine what God will accept. The fruit of our hands will never please Him. That's in, the, that, that's in the beginning of the Bible forward. Again, religious and spiritual substitutes, no matter how religious and spiritual they are, for that which God has required, will not be accepted by Him. God demands total obedience, total surrender on His terms. If that isn't given to Him, if that isn't produced by us, we will be judged. Period. Go verses 3 to 6. For now they will say, now, not like back in 1 Samuel, for now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. The harvesting metaphor that comes later in the chapter, that is the center of the passage really, points to certain realities which are identified here in verses 3 and 4 in particular. The political and religious systems of Israel were idolatrous, and immoral. Right? That, that's why this command to harvest is going to come. Where once Israel had demanded God to give them a king like all the other nations had, now they don't even think they really need a king, period. Isn't that very interesting? Believing that you needed something like what the other nations had in order to be safe and prosperous has led you to understand or to believe that a king, like all the other nations had, is completely unnecessary. God could have told them that and he did remember that was that that's first samuel you don't need the other nations to provide this for you right but you've rejected me from being king the people are exasperated in hosea 10 they're done with politics they found out it's all a sham right do you see that here that god will take our king from us because we disobeyed him but what good is a king anyway And their religion is empty. You look in verse 4. There's been no integrity sown in this nation. So it's it's filled with lawsuits. 
frivolous lawsuits. It's a nation full of the poisonous weeds of greed and self-absorption and demands. Lawyers don't have much to do when everyone is honorable. So it's telling now that Israel is filled with judgments like poisonous weeds. Right? That's indicative. That, that what's going on in the justice system is indicative of what is being sown in a nation. It's very interesting. Israel's full of judgments. They're like weeds. They, they utter godly words, but they don't come from the heart. They make oaths, but the oaths are empty. Again, they go through all the necessary religious motions to look as though they're spiritual. It's not that that went away, but underneath all of it is idolatry. They're like a, they're like a dead church that is just waiting for somebody to put it out of its misery. Right? That's not, I don't say that like to be coy, like that's what we are. That's not what I mean. But you, you maybe have in your mind, that's what Israel's like. They're, they're a dead church. They're, they're going through the motions all the time of, of church. They're able to keep the lights on and keep the doors open, but there's no love for God. That's basically what is happening in Israel. Beth El has become, or Bethel has become Beth Avon. Again, he spoke of this before. It's no longer the house of God which is what Bethel means. It's the house of wickedness, which is what Beth-Avon means. They should be trembling in Israel for the true God. Instead, they're trembling for the calf that had been set up by Jeroboam when the kingdom divided. So you see this. There is religious trembling in Israel. There is piety. There is respect for the traditions of the past. But it's all for the sake of their idols. And they're right to be afraid because those idols will be taken away. Literally, the calf will be exiled so to speak. It will be taken away. What they believed was their source of glory will become their shame. The more altars they build, the more God will have to tear down, is, is, is what he's saying. Look at 7 and 8. Samaria's kings shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistles shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Complete and total judgment will fall on Israel, regardless of how religious they look, regardless of how materially prosperous they are. It doesn't even matter if they realize there's a problem when they flat out refuse to repent on God's terms. And so when Assyria finally comes to destroy them, the situation will be so desperate, they'll hope for an earthquake to crush them rather than going to exile. Now, these words in eight should sound familiar to us. They should sound familiar to us. Um, this is how Jesus describes the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in Luke twenty-three thirty. But even that judgment in A.D. 70, along with this judgment that will happen in 722 B.C., are merely prefiguring the ultimate and final judgment of God on the whole earth. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 16, or Revelation chapter 6, I'm sorry, verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now we've seen all throughout Hosea these little whispers and implications being made that, that Israel is a picture here. It's not that, that this literally happened. Don't, I don't mean that at all when I say they're a picture. I mean in the design of redemption, they're a picture of all humanity and of the drift of humanity and the idolatry of all humanity because we're all from Adam. That's why they were the way they were. That's why we are the way we are. Israel's judgment then <clears throat> is a picture of humanity's judgment. What they will cry out for in fear and terror is what the whole world will cry out for in fear and terror eventually for anything to kill them but Jesus. Right? This will be a terrifying day when full and final judgment comes. The cries will sound the same because the sin of mankind is always ultimately, foundationally the same. God will not be our King. And God will always come to prove that He is. 
And in that day, who can stand? Right? History always repeats itself because mankind never really changes. Look, look, look at 9 and 10. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Gibeah was one of the worst moments in a long history of wickedness in the nation of Israel. It's one of those stories we don't usually tell in Sunday school, and I'm not sure that we should in Sunday school. Uh, we don't even make uh, you know, little kids' nursery blankets out of it like we do with Noah, which blows my mind. I mean, it's cute. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong. Please, I'm just, it's just funny. It's like, oh, you remember that time God killed everybody with water? Let, let's make blankets for babies out of that. That's so cute and so precious. It just doesn't make any sense, but that's fine. In the days of the judges, and this comes particularly from Judges 19, a Levite had a concubine, which is bad enough, but it gets worse after he goes after her for escaping him and shacking up with other men. She hid in the home of her father. He went back to get her. And after a few days there, they leave. And on their journey, they were going to stop in a Jebusite village, a non-Israelite people. But the Levite is a little too pious for that. He's not too pious to have a concubine, but he's too pious to shack up with dirty Gentiles. So they go on to Gebeah in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. They'd be fine there. Those were all Jews. No, the sin of Sodom was alive and well in Israel. An old man let them stay with him since the public square was somehow too dangerous at night for visitors. The men of the town gather around his door. The imagery is almost exactly like it was for Lot. right? And, and demanded that, that these men from the village demand for the visitor, the Levite, to come out so that they might know him. This, this is not to play cards. That, that is as vile as you can imagine it to be. That's what the whole town was going to wanted to do to this man. Okay? That's not, that's exactly what's happening here. It was disgusting and horrible. But then the kind old Jewish man that let them in his home to save them from the public square offers his own daughter and the Levite concubine to them, just like Lot did, offers them, the daughter gets to stay, but the concubine is eventually sent out, and the text says they abused her all night. That was Israel. That's the group, that, that's the nation that doesn't do these kinds of things. No, yes they do. That was Israel. And this, it's one of the most awful stories in the Bible. This, this, poor woman, and I mean that in every sense of the word, this poor woman, it's awful, obviously means nothing really to this pious Levite who was, again, too pure to stay the night with Gentiles. So what does he do? Takes this poor woman's body, cuts her up in 12 pieces. This is in the Bible. Again, if the Bible were a movie, it'd be rated R. Cuts her up in pieces, sends her body parts to the tribes of Israel, demanding they take vengeance on the tribe of Benjamin for it. I love his religious sense of justice after the fact. Just so, it goes awful. There's full-scale civil war, basically. Benjamin gets totally eradicated. But thankfully, thankfully, the rest of the tribes step in and they pimp out their virgin daughters to the kind men of Benjamin to repopulate their tribe and preserve it. What a wonderful place Israel was just like the world. You see it. Just like... And again, it's not a statement of superiority over them. The point is, they are us and we are them. That's the point. The Bible's passionate to make this point. Israel is, is highlighted for a time as, as this apple of God's eye because the point was, you can be that. I can give you the law. I can pick you and just walk with you and you will still turn on me. Right? You'll still be like this. That was the generate. This is following the Red Sea parting and all those wonderful things. This is who they had become. The Bible wants us to understand who we are. What's really in there. And now the sin in some way 
or the spirit of it at least, is about to be repeated here. So the crime of Gebeah was no exception in Israel. It was the rule. That's who they really are. The war against Gebeah was a war against the unjust. It was right for them to be judged, for justice to overtake them, just as it will be right for justice to overtake Israel once more. Only this time, God's instrument of judgment will not be Israel, but it will be other nations in verse 10. They'll be utterly overtaken, destroyed, wiped out. The tribes of Israel brought the tribe of Benjamin down to just 600 men. What will be the result when the Lord himself comes to judge Israel? Look at verses 11 and 12 now. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Beloved, both of those verses are verses of judgment. They're both verses of judgment. We are not meant to read these verses, or we're meant to read these verses as judgment. This is a command to do what cannot be done, but is still required nonetheless. When you, when you and I get to verse 12, what in the world does this nation have to sow? Where are they going to get it? Where are they going to get the righteousness to sow, to produce for God? In the past, Israel was like a tender young calf that God protected and cared for. Now, the imagery is she's going to have to suffer. She's going to have to work to earn God's love back in the metaphor, so to speak. She's going to have to work for it. It was granted to her by grace before when God found her alone in the wilderness. Now you want to keep my covenant love? Earn it. Work. It's judgment, beloved. It's judgment. She'll be harnessed for slavery at the hands of the Assyrians. Both the northern and southern kingdoms are ultimately on the hook here. Babylon will be Judah's vessel of judgment in God's hands. Assyria is Israel's vessel. They'll both be put to the yoke for their sin. And both will be expected to sow righteousness, to reap steadfast love, and to break up their fallow ground. Good luck with that, Israel and Judah. The, the people for whom the crime of Gebeah is the rule, not the exception. Do you see what the Bible does? Paul does this very similar thing in Romans where he makes the statements in, in Romans 2 um, that for those who follow the law, they'll be, they'll be um, saved by doing these things. Again, in... I want to be careful there until I get to preach Romans, but remember Romans chapter 1 showed that every human being was ripe for judgment. So it's a, it's a, a, a literary device. Who is going to keep the law in light of Romans 1 and Romans 3? Right? Hosea is doing the very same thing here. It, it, it's, I, I, know, I know that we're, I think, um, in other words, the people are supposed to seek God in faith and repentance. If they do, He will come and rain righteousness upon them. What's the command? Beloved, the law is never good news. Law is never good news for earth dwellers. Ever. Right? The Bible makes that clear. Plant and produce that which is pleasing to God, and He'll take you back under His wing. That's... As you read through Hosea, though, something has become painfully clear. Israel has nothing righteous to plant. Neither will Judah when the time comes. It's a terrifying text. And Israel didn't do it. They were destroyed. Hosea 10.12 is not a general verse to use when you want to have a revival. In your church, for example. Whatever that means. Okay, It's time for us to... to uh, sow righteousness and reap steadfast love and break up our fallow ground. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. Right? It, it, it's a command from a holy God to sow and reap that which is pleasing to Him in order to stave off His impending judgment and regain His favor. Are those the terms we want? Are there any takers? 
Are there any takers? I, I, I can do that. I'll do that. I'll get his approval back. I'll get his blessing back. His light will shine on us again. Just give me the chance to earn it. Anyone think they can actually show enough righteousness to please a holy God? God requires absolute holiness. He requires righteousness. Remember then what Jesus revealed in John 15 about the Father. The Father is a vine dresser. He expects fruit. Well, you've got a luxurious vine here. A luxuriant vine here. But nothing it produced could satisfy God. Nothing. That's the point of the text. The point here is not you're a vine that doesn't produce. The point here is you're a luxuriant vine and God doesn't want anything you have. You see that? Look at verses 13 and 15. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall rise, arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Israel was not, never has been, a lazy nation. That was not the issue. She had been very busy in the field, sowing. Right? Very busy. She's prosperous. Very religious. Very committed. Very disciplined. But what they did sow, their crop, reaps judgment from God, not His blessing. And because of that, because you have not produced what I require, God says, I'm going to bring war to you. I'm going to destroy you and cut you off. Beloved, if, if this nation and what they had couldn't produce a crop pleasing to God, no one can. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. We don't know, we actually don't know precisely what this shaman did to Beth Arbel, but they would have known, right? They would have, they would have gotten the picture. It's apparently somehow synonymous with these horrible mothers were dashed in pieces with their children that your king will be cut off. Judgment is coming. And yes, there was time to repent, but they didn't. Great evil, as he references here, left in our hands to atone for results in our destruction. We are not just sinners in need of forgiveness. We are people who have never produced what is pleasing to God and what God demands. We are doubly condemned. We are doubly insufficient for salvation. So if we're left to produce for God that which He will actually accept, and we're adulterers by nature, as Hosea and all Scripture make abundantly clear, then the question that stands before us in this text before all of us is, who can stand? Who can stand? I don't really mean it to sound reductionistic or as though I'm oversimplifying this, but do we realize here the root cause of Israel's condition and impending judgment here, at least relative to Hosea 10? What was the problem here? Why was all this going to happen? Because we can't handle prosperity we don't know how to cope with it countless books have been written on how believers can handle adversity it's a very rare thing to pick up a book on how to handle prosperity right because we don't we don't think that's a we think that's the goal see what the enemy has done see what he's sown into our world prosperity ease blessing that's the goal that's the good life could be but we don't write many books on it because we don't see it as a threat yet prosperity is as much if not more of a threat than adversity is to our souls perfect provision didn't keep Adam and Eve from sinning there was still a desire for more for else for something else God has woven that idea into all scripture it began for Israel in Deuteronomy 8 6 through 14 
as they're about to enter the promised land. You remember what God said to them? This land I'm giving you is going to be very good. It's going to be very good. It'll be abundant and beautiful. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God when you begin to eat the wonderful food here and build good houses and your flocks and your gold begin to multiply. Don't forget me. Be careful. Don't forget the one who brought you out of Egypt and gave all of this to you. And then later on in that chapter in 17 and 18, he warns them again, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. Now I'm not preaching, I don't think the text is preaching a categorical prohibition on being wealthy. I, I don't, I don't think that's the point. Being wealthy in and of itself is not automatically, it's not categorically a sin any more than being poor is. But we're not listening closely enough to the Word when we ignore its consistent warnings, both implicit and explicit, about the desire we have to become wealthy. You don't have to be rich to love money. The pursuit to be rich... And the way our hearts are prone because of the fall to respond to prosperity. The Bible is warning us about this all the time. Proverbs 38 and 9 sees wisdom in a heart that desires neither poverty nor riches, but just entrusts oneself wholly to God to provide. Nine times just in Luke's gospel alone, our Lord Jesus himself warns those who desire to get, or warns about the dangers of wealth. Paul tells Timothy, that those who desire to get rich fall into temptation. Hosea is a warning to us about how our hearts tend to interpret material prosperity and provision as a statement of our strength, as a statement or a revelation of our ability or our talent or our skill. And anything, good or bad, that takes our eyes off of Jesus as the sole source of everything we have is like poison to our souls. We are not built to deal with it. We aren't really built for wealth. It, I guess you see it maybe amplified when some poor soul wins the lottery and is, is just bankrupt and everything's an absolute disaster in just a matter of a few years. I remember being young and thinking, if, if I... If you won a couple hundred million dollars, how in the world could you spend it all? And now being 43, I think, you give me about six or seven days, I will zero out that account. Like, I wouldn't, I, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It, it's not a good thing for human beings to be given reasons to think they're self-sufficient. It generally leads to idolatry. It leads one to forget God. It turns our eyes inward and or it leads one to become disillusioned to the point of despair and doubt and unbelief. I mean, what do you need God for when by the work of your own hands you achieve the ability to take care of yourself just fine and then some? See, as long as you we view Him as a means to an end on the earth, when we get it, if He isn't the one that helped us get it, what do we need him for? Right? It's, it's, it's just dangerous. It's just dangerous. Prosperity being a luxuriant vine, again, God does not deny that, that yields its fruit. Its fruit is increasing. It's got, it's got money to build altars and build pillars. Things are going very well. But it didn't lead them into benevolence or gratitude for God. It did not lead them there. In fact, it bought her enough things to start thinking, we can get along just fine on our own. So bring in some other gods. We don't just need this Yahweh. He's great, but bring in some others. We're killing it. Right? She thinks we're able to do pretty good all by myself. I mean, look around. We're a luxuriant vine. Now, there are two things happening there, I think, at least two. One is that idea of self-sufficiency that stirs in our hearts. Yes. The other is the idea that the works of our hands will actually impress God. That's another side of it. 
Again, they haven't, at least in word, turned away from the Lord. They still have a desire to honor Him and please Him on their own terms, with their own stuff, the produce of their own hands. So God may say, He may have told them it should be this way, you should only worship here, it should look like this, but how can He deny what He sees here? This is, you know, that's their attitude. How can He deny this? Surely He'll be impressed with all this. I mean, the, the, the temple, you know, the, the fortresses we built, the, the things that, these are beautiful altars. These are beautiful pillars. The, surely God is going to be pleased with this. We've brought our best, right? It's my favorite. We brought our best. We put our hearts into it. We've reaped what we've sown. Idolatry is unavoidable by that point. It's unavoidable. What can't I accomplish is what man thinks the more he accomplishes. Right. Look what I can do for myself. I, I can't remember who it was. Bertrand Russell, maybe, talking about how our how the advances and this was the mid twentieth century advances in technology mystically unite us with something that is like magic. We just think, where will it end? Look what we can do. It's it, you know it's it's just. The end of that road, look what I can do, is I don't need God. Right? And again, when everybody's landlocked and what you need, the primary desires of your soul are all tied to the earth, longevity, wealth, health, you know, looking great. When everything you desire is tied to the earth and you find functional saviors, God is, He's just, He's just set aside. And the problem is, you don't set God aside. No! We don't, we don't get to do that. We forget we were created. We came, we're secondary. We're not primary. We're not independent. We're completely dependent all the time. We don't need, uh, in our own hearts, in our own minds, we don't, really need a king in verse 3. Look, look, see that? You see the progression? There can be disillusion. It doesn't mean it's going to drive you to the Lord. You're just going to be like, yeah, we, we don't need a king, no. I can make my own gods. Right? And, and the delusion of that is, is real. God addresses that in the Psalms. He addresses it in Isaiah. He's addressing it in Hosea here. Like you, you, We actually make our own gods. Do we have any sense of how hilariously and tragically self-absorbed that is. You make your own gods. We can't even handle worshiping something we didn't make. Right? That's who we are. When we were created, as I said, as dependent beings on God for even our next breath. Job sees this. In his hand is the breath of every living thing. In his hand. I don't... If God doesn't cause my lungs to exhale and inhale, I die right here in front of you the minute He cuts it off. The, the second He cuts it off. We're literally that dependent. But we, again, what do, what do things and achievements and uh, just the flow, this is how dangerous it is, how poisoned we are, just the flow of everyday life makes me forget that most basic of dependencies. Right? Even as a believer. It's just, God is normally brought in at the end. Oh yeah, that's right. It's, all the glory goes to you. Well. And then our self-validating desires, eventually, we tried to throw off His rule. I mean, it takes, it takes one chapter out from the fall, one chapter, chronologically, for us to see that this malady was forever written into the DNA of mankind through the curse. It's, it's a curse. When Cain brought the fruit of his own labor and tried to give it as an offering to God. It was not that God has this preference for animal blood over fruit. It was that animal blood recognized that we've gone way too far to earn our way back by giving things to God. You see, Abel somehow, by God's revelation, understood that. Like, yeah, we're, we're, we're done. We, there's like, what are we going to give to God? Cain, however, 
growing something and then giving it to God that reeks of self-sufficiency, of self-validation. Look what I made. Honor this. There's a demand in it. You see that? There's a demand when you're offering up the produce of your own hands of God. That's crazy. Like, you have to take this. I tried really hard. I grew this. I sweat for this. God rejected it. Well, that, that doesn't honor me. That honors you. You think I'm stupid? Right? And He's not. You think you can gain my favor with the works of your own hands? You think I'm going to be pleased by that now and we'll just erase this curse thing, Cain? God is turning Israel's self-sufficiency then back on itself in verse 12. So for yourselves. You see that? That's not good news. So for yourselves that which is pleasing to me. I'm not going to do it. You do it. You adulterers. Try it. They honestly think what they have produced is enough. They're luxuriant. They honestly believe it will be pleasing to God. Do we understand what it is that makes that idea so fatal? Why is this so fatal? Who has ever given God a gift that He should be repaid? You understand, we can't give Him anything. He owns everything. It's like when your kids on Christmas morning wrap up something from the house, like a bowl, with with tender, precious little hearts. I got you something. Thanks. You know, you love them, because why would you ever be mean to your kid in that moment? But... He's turning it back on itself. Everything belongs to Him. To give anything to God without recognition that it's merely a return of what already belongs to Him is to do Him the ultimate dishonor. Our efforts and works to please God are literally like re-gifting a bread maker to somebody when they gave it to you as a wedding gift. Like, yeah, I got you this bread maker. That looks like the one I, we got you. For your your wedding, oh yeah, it's a great bread maker. You should you, you you know that's that's what it is. That's what it is. Self sufficiency, which is what makes, which is what prosperity uniquely tends to make us think we have, is like poison to our desperate need for grace. That's precisely. What is so deadly about it is we get convinced that our salvation is in our own hands. That we actually know what God likes. Even post-faith. And that we have it within us to impress Him. God says to them, Alright, plant the righteousness I require. Produce the steadfast love I deserve. You see what we do when we read the law? When the law interacts with my nature, there's sin. Do you know why? Not because the law is bad. But because when I see a command, I think, yeah, I can do that. No, we can't. No, we can't. Who knows precisely what that righteousness looks like that must be sown and reap a crop for God. It's God. He tells him, produce the steadfast love I deserve. Produce it. Let me see it. How do you feel when you're commanded to love? Right? You have to love me. You have to love me. It's insane. Nobody on earth is that great. But what if you do deserve it? Like only God does. Reap it. Come on. Right? Let's see it. Create that in your heart. Create steadfast love for me in your heart. If I receive that, I'll absolutely come and rain righteousness upon you. Absolutely. If I get what I deserve from you, I'll absolutely save you. I'll absolutely keep you. When they heard that from Hosea, it should have crushed them. When they heard Hosea 10.12. Again, the law is never good news. Law and gospel are antithetical. Or, or they're... they're Chapter 10 is law language. That's how we need to hear it. Verse 12 is law. 
Verse 12 is do this and live. Do you see that? That's law. Verse 8 is don't do this and you'll end up crying for the rocks to crush you instead of me. And they were destroyed. And I, I here's the thing. This I was reading in one of the commentaries I have on Hosea, and I want you to know, like I I I pro I, I probably still too heavily rely on commentaries because I I just don't in meaning I'm not comfortable disagreeing with them all the time, but here I just think like I can't I know those guys are smarter than me, is what I'm saying. But but I'm reading in one of the commentaries I have on Hosea, and it concluded its notes on this section by encouraging the preacher to pose the following questions in light of this text to the congregation. Okay? In the sermon, crescendo with this. So, what will you produce for God? Will you break up your fallow ground? Will you do it? Will you give to God of that which He is worthy? Look, I, I, I would like to respectfully say that tragically misses the point here. This text is meant to send you and I running straight to Jesus for shelter from His blazing holiness. Beloved, Hosea 10 means we need someone to come and sow in us for God that which we cannot produce. What are we going to give? Well, you know, hey, Tony, you know, I love my neighbor today. I actually did it at one point. Good. I mean that. Good. Did you not covet anything your other neighbor has? Did you manage to love your wife as much as Christ loved the church today? Wives, did you submit to your husband as to the Lord today? Did you bear somebody else's burden today? Not did you tell them you'd pray for them, which is fine, but did you literally take their burden and lay it on your back to bear the weight of it as though it was actually yours? Were you gentle today? Were you kind today? Were you meek today? In every moment, every second. That's what God requires. Did you give to the poor today? Did you do it not expecting anything in return? Did you not murmur today about anything, not even the weather? Did you not complain today? Did you pray without ceasing today? Did you obey today? Were you righteous enough today? Did you reap enough steadfast love today? Do you see what the law is doing it is so holy and righteous and good, we don't have a prayer. Because if you blow it in one little sliver, you've blown the entire thing. Why would our hope ever be, alright, I can pull that one off. Great, maybe you literally can. But God isn't asking for the lowest common denominator. Jesus had to die for God to have what God deserves from humanity. My goodness! What will you produce for God today? Will you break up your fallow ground today? Will you give to God that which He is worthy of today? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's all the law does is condemn. What are we going to give? What are we going to sow? Again, I'm, I'm not demeaning good works. And I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do them for crying out loud. I'm just telling you. You plug one hole with an act of obedience, you're going to let a hundred others burst. We only have two hands. And they're sinful. We don't have enough hands. We can't lift up the amount of gold it would take if God took gold to honor Him. Right? God made gold. <laughs> like, like it's, it's I, they pave the streets with it up there, so to speak. That, that's what they think of gold up there. You walk on it. For God to accept us then, we need somebody to obey, verse 12, because it's the law. For God to accept us, we need somebody to come and sow for us, in us, that which we cannot produce. And beloved, only Jesus can produce the harvest God requires. Only Jesus. We weren't ever meant to feel like we could handle it. We're meant to feel the weight of needing someone to produce in our place. We're meant to feel that weight. I'm insufficient. Again, it's not self-deprecating. 
It's aligning yourself with reality. We're meant to always be aware of our utter bankruptcy and inability to please God with the works of our hands. Verse 12 is a command to people that have no money to produce money. The self-sufficiency and sense of pride that prosperity tends to produce in us threatens that need we have to see it that way on a foundational level. Not because money, money is paper. Not because money is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. But because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The problem isn't paper that's been assigned value. The problem is the twisted, crooked human heart. Our hearts are too wicked to even process God's blessings in a way that will end with us giving glory to Him rather than ourselves. Right? So we're in trouble if we don't have a substitute. We'll end up crying for the mountains to cover us, for the hills to fall on us when the Lamb comes with His angels to settle all the accounts. Right? I, I, I watch brothers and sisters I have demean themselves so badly during like like Lent. Oh, I didn't keep my promise to God. Oh, Do you think he's like that? Do you think he's like that? You promised me no internet for 30 days. What, what am I worth to you? Am I not worth anything to you? Oh, man. Rest. He got it. He's satisfied. He got it. We're in trouble if we don't have a substitute. We will know in that moment when we see Him. We'll know how pathetically insufficient and unable we were to please Him on our own. It's going to take one look. The Father is a vine dresser, beloved. God wants fruit. And we don't have it in us to produce it. We don't have it in us to want to produce it in a way that will give Him all the glory. So we're just undone. We're just undone. The law kills but there was this man that was born, this Israelite who came onto the scene, and he walked blamelessly and did what was right. He spoke the truth in his heart. He didn't slander with his tongue. He didn't do any evil to his neighbor. He didn't take up a reproach against a friend. He didn't become obsessed with petty complaints and pervert justice. He honored those who feared the Lord. He swore to his own hurt and didn't change. He didn't lend out his money and interest. He didn't take a single bribe against the innocent. He didn't worship idols. He didn't commit a single injustice against anybody. He had no iniquity. He committed no sin. And then he offered up to God this perfectly righteous and obedient life as a sacrifice to God, not by gaining wealth, but by giving all of it up to become our righteousness. You see, Jesus became poor to give you and I the currency God accepts. What saves sinners is Jesus giving up His wealth, not us giving up ours. And somewhere it is written of this one I just described, I am the true vine. Beloved, do you hear Christ calling out to us in the gospel tonight from the book of Hosea. The law comes and it kills. I'm, I don't do this. I can't do this. But then the voice of Jesus comes and says, I know that. So I'll be the vine. You be the branches. Right? You see it? And what does he say? Then you'll glorify God because you're connected to me. And I produce that which God requires. I'm going to do it all for you. And anything you do in your life that honors me is actually the fruit of the Spirit I've sent to dwell in you. You don't give me anything. Right? We cannot obey the command to produce what God requires. We can't drum up enough righteousness. We can't feel enough love. We can't do what is necessary to our own hearts to be receptive to God on our own. What does it mean to break up your follow ground? Do we know intuitively how to do that? 
It's always time to seek the Lord. The terrifying thing is the Bible says we can't even do that. So our only hope tonight is that somebody could and did obey these commands. Someone did sow perfect righteousness. Someone did reap steadfast love. Someone did give his heart completely to God. And God rained righteous down on him. So much of it, in fact, that it raised him from the dead. Our only hope is Christ. He is all we have. We don't have anything else. We don't have the right things. We don't have enough. Jesus does. And Jesus will forever. The problem, and I'm almost done here, with emphasizing our obedience all the time is this. What do we tell Christians who keep disobeying? And if we're honest, that would be everybody. Again, you just weigh it out. Well, I didn't disobey here. I'm serious about this. I care about this. Again, don't, don't, don't let people do that. They'll make you think they're pious. Because this thing, whatever it is, is really important to them. You're like, man, I never even thought that's so important. What about this thing that is clear? How are you doing on that one? Right? I mean, it's just impossible. Again, you're just plugging. I obeyed here. I did, oh, there's a plug over there. It's just. What does your disobedience, your inability, your lack of total surrender and devotion, if all we ever emphasize is, is obedience, then what does all that mean? What if, to emphasize obedience, what does it mean that you're not obedient then? Are you just struggling or are you not really saved? Which is it? Eventually, I guarantee you, if you push lordship salvation where it's all on you, eventually you're, you're, you're going to have to become a Pharisee and a liar and a hypocrite or you're going to bail out. If you're honest. Did I fail when that happens or did Jesus fail? The good news is that the emphasis in the Bible is on the obedience of Christ on behalf of the disobedient. Salvation comes not when we decide to get serious enough about giving things to God. Salvation comes when we lay down our self-sufficiency and call out to Him to come save. He'll make us bear fruit. You and I cling to the vine. But Tony, God demands your total surrender and obedience. Do you hear the discipling calls of Jesus? He demands death. He demands total surrender and obedience. Yes, He does. Anyone here totally surrendered and obedient? Since that's the rule, how's everybody doing with that? How's everybody doing? You stand or fall on that, so how are you doing with it? Anyone here completely obedient? There isn't a Christian alive or dead to whom totally surrendered and obedient applies. Not one. You see, you see, it's, it's, it's the law. Kills so that you'll run to the Savior. Jesus is our hope for that very reason. That God demands total surrender and we can't give it. That's what makes Jesus my hope. So we, we, we don't surrender all. No, I, I know we sing it, and I don't, I don't want to be offensive. I, don't want to, I know we sing it, but no, we don't. We, we don't surrender all. Well, I want to. I wish I could. Then change the lyrics. Don't lie when you sing. I wish I could surrender all. That's what it should be. I wish I could surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. Some to Thee, my blessed Savior. I give you the best that I can. His obedience, His surrender, are counted as yours when by believing only in Him you reject all your self-sufficiency, every delusion you have that He will be pleased with you apart from a substitute. We need Him. We have Him. Believe the Gospel. Let the law do what the law does. It is holy and righteous and good. Let it send you running to Jesus. That's its ultimate purpose. It is a ministry of death that we might have life in Jesus Christ. So, beloved, we do not hope in what we can reap. We reap what Jesus has sown. All day, every day. I've preached over 59 minutes tonight. That's not good. That's a long time. And I appreciate your kindness. I know you're kind, but I look at my phone and I see that. And 
Anyway, it's not about me. What am I talking about myself for? It's not important. Believe the gospel. Believe it. Let me pray. I'll be down front. Linda's going to play for us. If, if, if uh, any of you need to come and pray for any reason, lay any of this stuff down, you come. I'll, I'll be here. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for your truth. Just, Father, I pray that we would be able to believe in you and in your sufficiency. God, it, it, it's not that there are no good works to be done. It's that according to the Bible, according to texts like Peter, they're not going to get done if our focus is not on Christ the vine. Things will get done, but that which brings glory to you, it won't get done. We don't get to determine what gives you glory. So, Father, I pray that you would be with us for the sake of our souls, our hope, our peace, all these beloved brothers and sisters of mine. Lord, be close to us. I pray and ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, those bread makers were really...